Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 6th of October. This is episode 188. Fun show coming up. Two very, very good interviews that I'm looking forward to. Uh, well, I've already heard them because we did them and they were good, but I'm looking forward to people out there listening to them. So first up, we've got Tim Wilson, obviously friend of the IPA, Tim Wilson MP. His new book is The New Social Contract, which you can buy now at select bookstores and it's widely available online. We're going to be talking to him about the book. Uh, what it means in the time of coronavirus, how to uh, talk about free markets and classical liberalism to a new generation and a lot on home ownership. So, I don't know, it's a really good book. People should go out and buy it. Very good interview as well. So, uh, it's also a good listen. We've also got Senator Claire Chandler from Tasmania. Last week on the show, we talked about her battle against the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Commissioner. The complaint has now been dropped, which is good, but there's still a whole lot of free speech issues around what went down and obviously the chilling effect that if they can go after a senator, there's a lot of uh, regular Tasmanians that might just feel a bit less confident speaking their minds on some controversial issues. So we're going to be talking about all that and uh, a few other free speech stories as well. So two really top class interviews, if I do say so myself, Pete. Yeah, no, really great to speak to a couple of rising stars of the coalition in Tim and Claire. They were really good chats. Give them a listen. The thing I'm looking forward to the most in this episode, James, is what I think is the state of the art, the piece de resistance, the thing that kids will be studying on their English exams many years from now, hopefully. Britain's Excel into- spreadsheet. What's that, sorry? I said Britain's Excel Britain's- spreadsheet. Is that the state of the art thing we're going to be talking about? That is not the state of the art thing we're going to be talking about. Um, I did a very funny tweet on that last night, which at this point has no likes, so disappointing, uh, painful to bring that up. No, what I was going to talk about was the apology letter for the fake racism thing. So I won't give away too many details because we're going to talk about that in the second half of the show, but I believe it to be the state of the art. Yeah, it is uh, very good. All right, so, but we do need to start off with the biggest story in the world, possibly this year, and... I don't know. It's definitely one of those where you remember where you were moments, but Trump got COVID. So, like, I, I don't even know what to say about it. it. It is one of those stories where you just sit there, you get, like, the message, you just go, whoa, and then it's you, you don't know what comes after that. Like, it's just a big, like, well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. When you say, where were you moment, it's like, because it's 2020, everyone was on their device. That's how they found out. That's how you find yeah, out I was about leading- stuff like this. Yeah, I was leading Wickham to uh, glory on Football Manager when uh, an NBA reporter actually was the first person I heard about it from. Like, this little tweet pops up. I'm just like, wow, these guys are getting good. I'm going to check the timeline on that because I'm pretty sure that it was during work hours that Trump uh, came out and said he had COVID. So we will check up on that, James. But um, I was online and my first reaction was, of course he does. It's 2020. Like, of course... Trump is going to get COVID. So, um, yeah, that happened. Just to update people on the actual news of what's happened, he's now out of the hospital and back to the White House as of 9.30 this morning, Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time. He tweeted, feeling really good. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. I feel better than I did 20 years ago, which is obviously not true. Um, Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany. How do you say her name? Sorry, James. Uh, I think you got it. Really? Okay, well, that's good. Well, anyway, she and two of her deputies have been testing positive, but he reckons he's going to be back to a normal work schedule. 
Yeah, so I, one thing that was speculated a lot was, was this going to change Trump's mind on COVID? Uh, people can remember that when Boris Johnson got it, before that he was very sceptical of lockdowns and was pushing back. After he went through it, he did seem to have a road to Damascus moment and was much more open to the concept. So the tweet that uh, Pete read out where he does say, don't be afraid of COVID, don't let it dominate your life. We've developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. Sort of implies that it's uh, still business as usual for Trump, which I don't know. It's, it's definitely going to be interesting the next month to see if he changes tunes on... I mean, you know, he does say he wears masks, but obviously the famed, uh, the now infamous debate prep where there were 10 people in a room together and none of them wore masks and now half of them are sick with COVID. Maybe that's the kind of stuff that gets changed. But where, when he talks about locking down the nation and locking down the economy to keep people safe... I don't know, maybe you'll say, look, I've been through this, I'm in as many at-risk brackets as you can imagine with the with his weight and age, that uh, if I can get through this, maybe we have developed something that does make death rates so much lower than they were in March and April. I think it definitely confirms his narrative. Assuming he doesn't get worse again, like it can come back, I believe. Um, but at the moment, if he just gets healthier and that's it, this will confirm his narrative that, you know, in a couple of ways, firstly, that COVID's not that bad. And secondly, his narrative that he's healthy and vital and Joe Biden is old and decrepit and, and he can old enough to overcome um, COVID in a few days. I'm pretty sure they pumped him full of steroids and stuff that they wouldn't give you unless you were really, really sick in most circumstances. So if he wasn't president, he would just kind of rest and recuperate and they'd allow him to get better in time or whatever, but they've pumped him full of this stuff. And I think he's probably going to use that as a, as a kind of, um, you know, to confirm his narrative. I got back better in three days. Ipso facto. I'm right about yeah, this I, stuff. I don't know too much about the inner workings of the Trump medical team. So I can't really comment on what the uh, quote unquote stuff was that they pumped him full of, uh, as Dr. Gregory has let us <laughs> all know about. Fortunately, I'm the expert. So I know I can tell you exactly what's happened, but yeah, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, it's all about the narrative and whether or not it changes. And I don't like the long-term effects, whether people would feel a bit weird voting for someone that might, you know, a couple months down have like that long COVID that you hear about. Mm. I will find out in a month, but no one knows anything about how this is playing at now. And anyone that says they do is lying. So I don't know. We're just going to sit back and just see what happens and just see what changes with how Trump talks about COVID. That's an interesting point. Boris Johnson, there's rumours that Boris Johnson from kind of, you know, within that he has not been the same since that happened. He still hasn't got the same energy and the same, um, you know, brain power that he had prior to it. He's still struggling a bit. So that is interesting. That if I think slows. he did say he was as fit as a six butchers dogs, which I, I, I didn't even know that was a saying. Uh, and I still don't quite know what it's getting at, but that that's what's on the record. Well, I, I stand corrected on that. But um, yeah, so that there is, it is interesting seeing a play out like that. What did you make of the reaction? Because Twitter actually said they were going to shut people down for hoping for people saying that they hope he dies and stuff, which I was very surprised by. I just thought they wouldn't bother with that. Um, but, you know, what, so what did you make of the reaction overall? I thought it was basically what you'd expect it to be. Yeah, I'm kind of like going to... Well, why don't I just bring up my hero of the week now, um, which was talking about that. So I don't know, like... Yeah, surprise, surprise, Twitter was accessible when the when Donald Trump got COVID. So I don't think anyone's blown away by that fact. But I mean, you saw the ugly people honestly wishing that someone would die of COVID, which, you know, you don't want to spend too much time reflecting on because that's just a sickness. The one that like, I found interesting is the people that were going like, uh, you know, wanting to congr- wanting everyone to congratulate them 
on not wanting Trump to get COVID. It's like, look, <laughs> I, you know, even all of the disagreements I have with this guy, I'm being very brave here. I'm being very big and saying, I hope he doesn't die, which is like, you know, well, well round of applause. So the hero this week, um, like Rachel Maddow was like the only good sweet on the matter. So just let me. I've somehow copied it so small that I can't read it. So here we go. God bless the president and the first lady. If you pray, please pray for their speedy and complete recovery and for everyone else infected everywhere. This virus is horrific and merciless. No one would wish its wrath on anyone. We must get this spread under control enough. There you go. Classy. You don't You don't need to hope he dies. You don't need to everyone to congratulate you on not wanting him to die. You just need to say, hey, I hope he recovers. So there we go. She, of course, Rachel Maddow from MSNBC. Is that right? Famous lefty in America, just for those that might not be... Very well done, Peter Gregory. Across that. Um, yeah, see, even five years ago, it was like completely unremarkable that people from across the political divide would uh, wish each other the best of health. So, yeah, there you go. Should we move on to the next one, James? Yeah, because in Australia, the tonight is going to be the federal budget. So we don't know a whole lot about what's in there. There's been some leaks that have come out already. And I don't know, there's two things that I'm reading a whole lot about, which is one, the income tax cuts. And then second, this uh, Keynesian spending style, trying to get people back on employment. So I don't know. I'll start with the income tax cuts, which I'm always a fan of in any form. And I think that's one of the better responses you can have to this is just to make sure people have as much access to their own money as possible uh, because they need it now more than ever. So I think income tax cuts, I think that's a big tick for me, Pete. Yeah, and look, as you mentioned, this is the stuff that the government has drip-fed the journos, that the stuff they want you to know, so it hasn't come out yet, and we don't know everything that's in there, and, and it does take a while to read it, so we don't know for a while. There is the tax cut, there is the, the subsidy that you mentioned uh, for people under 35, um, for businesses to take on young Australians who've been forced on a job seeker during COVID, and, and the income tax, as you mentioned. The thing, there's a... There was a sentence in the Australian or a little passage in the Australian which summed up for me the danger of this kind of thing. Um, and that is, it said, Mr. Friedberg's second budget will focus on restoring and creating millions of jobs, getting more cash into the pockets of Australian businesses and workers and driving private sector investment. It's not the government that gets money into people's pockets. It's not the government that drives private sector investment. It's the private sector. It's the economy. And there's going to be a heap, as I said, like I've been saying this for the last few weeks, there's going to be a heap of announcements from governments around Australia saying, we're going to get money back into people's pockets. We're going to get the economy up and going again. That is not the case. It is the government and and government mismanagement in some parts which has created this problem in the first place Uh, and it'll be the private sector that gets it out of it, gets gets us out of it Uh, and I get this is the budget so it's got budget measures but long term if we want to make sure we use this as an opportunity to realise our full potential as a nation, we should be cutting regulation, particularly cutting regulation with regards to energy. Stop tying our hands behind our back with regards to energy, you know, making the labour market more flexible. Um, or cutting green tape, all those things will be the things that make us like use this, what's happened as an opportunity to fulfil our potential. But yeah, let's not fall into the narrative that the government is getting stuff back into our hands because that's not the case. And the problem with these employment programs that get people employed is that if the market isn't there for that particular job or like the long-term sustainable, uh, you know, it's not like long-term sustainable within a company to have this person on this job that's being subsidized by the government, then eventually when that subsidy goes, that person becomes unemployed. So I don't know, it kind of in a way just kicks a can down the road on the long-term unemployment costs. And it might even be worse if a person's like then trained for two years or so in a job that is unsustainable, then two years later becomes unemployed. Um, as I deal with hay fever, so if anyone's watching and just saw me wipe my nose, don't worry. But uh, he's it, got it. 
Yeah, me and Trump. We were in that room together. I was part of the debate prep team. But uh, where was I? So, you, you know, they, they're going to be unemployed and then trained up in a job that they might not be able to satisfy uh, for another company. So, I don't know. It's a long term, to, uh, long way to go. And again, we don't know a whole lot of the details. But what we do know is that another podcast that the IPA does, the IPA With You, which I know a lot of our listeners listen to and I know a lot of whole people all around Australia are listening to, is doing really well. The IPA With You are going to be going live tonight immediately after Josh Frydenberg's speech. And they're just going to be reacting to the budget, reacting to the measures. They'll obviously have access to a lot more information than we do right now. So it's going to be a really good show. I'm looking forward to watching it. So the IPA With You listen to it exactly right get get on to that uh tonight now i'd like to make just one more point about this james to take up your point about um you know the, the cost of this is being pushed down the road it's for under like this idea this measure we're going to get under 35s back into work that's all well and good but it's under 35s that are going to be paying back this stuff for the rest of their lives and their children uh and it's going to be a 1.1 trillion dollar debt ceiling after this one it's been rumored in the in the budget so all these measures that people talk about and young people go oh that's great it's helping young people young people and older people but young people primarily will be paying that stuff back all right uh, james abc pay rise talk us to it last week it was announced abc staff would vote against a pay freeze uh so a move to defer their annual two percent pay rise for six months uh so this was recommended by the government can you please uh, defer your pay rises. A, a number of uh, most public service organisations uh, agreed to having a pay freeze this year. Services Australia, Centrelink, the Department of Health and the Department of Social Services, who have all been on the front line of the response to the pandemic, have had a pay freeze. Not the people at the ABC, James. What do you think? I think we're all in this together, Pete. <laughs> I think just, you know, the whole nation, we're getting around each other in this time of crisis and everyone is on the line together. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think, you know, I am absolutely sick of paying a billion dollars for this organization a year to say how much they hate me. Uh, and then and then stuff like this happens, you know. They would absolutely rightly go nuts. If, if, like if they, I say to people who, who think that, you know, the ABC should be publicly funded, you know, imagine if you had to go and pay tax to Rupert Murdoch every year to the tune of a billion dollars to put out his media organization. You'd rightly be um, go nuts. That's how we feel. That's how we feel about the ABC. We have to pay all this money to keep them going uh, for them to tell us how terrible we are. And then... Yeah, I... But the thing, Sorry. like, for me is I wouldn't want to pay it even if it was just an organisation to tell, like, if they ran wall-to-wall coverage on how good James Bolt is, I still wouldn't want to pay for it. Like, there's no reason that taxpayers should be funding a news agency. So, like, I, I don't... I, it's, I, I feel it's always tempting to go down the line of, well, things would be better if they were just even-handed. I, I just think the problem itself is run to the core. There should not be a nationally funded broadcaster. Yeah, no, I don't believe there should be a national uh, funded broadcaster either. I'm just sort of pointing out, like, for us, it's literally like to say, we're paying for them to say how much they hate us anyway. Um, and it's just, yeah. And then for them to go, oh, we're not going to accept, we're not going to accept a pay freeze for six months. There's 600,000 people out of work in the private sector. They probably don't even understand that they're, their wages literally come from the private sector and the, and the, the lockdowns that they've cheered on has absolutely smashed the private sector. 6,000 people that have a job, it's on their knees. They, they probably literally don't have the economic understanding to realise that the bill, every cent they're paid comes from the private sector and at the time when the private sector is absolutely on its knees, they have said, and we're going to have a 2% pay rise and we're not going to put it off for six months. I don't understand how you could do that. Uh, I just can't believe that. And as you said, we're not all in this together. There's two Australias. 
Yeah, I think it's a completely tone-deaf move, which is a th- problematic thing to say, which we're going to get into later in the show. So Very we'll move to Heroes and Villains. I've already, or obviously already done my hero this week, but this is a Grunt the Pig Freedom still, uh, snell, Snout something. Begins with S. Do it, uh, you know, podcast at home uh, along with me. But, uh, Pete, your hero this week. Well, my hero is us, James, because we got through the whole first section without mentioning Victoria or Daniel Andrews. So well done, us, and thank you. Well, to we nearly got there. <laughs> <laughs> you bought him. The thing, in. You bought him. The thing it about up. Dan Andrews, James. The thing about Dan Andrews. So you know, a big, big round of applause for us, and thank you for all our non-Victorian listeners for sticking through us, sticking with us through all this time. Anyway, my my hero this week is really good. Uh, it's that polio was eradicated in Africa last week. So Africa was declared free from wild polio by the Africa Regional Certification Certification Commission. Uh, in 1996, there were 75,000 cases across the continent. Nigeria was the last country to eradicate it uh, a couple of weeks back because more than 95% of the country has now been immunised. Only Pakistan and Afghanistan remain as the countries where there is still polio. Now, one of the reasons why it was difficult for Nigeria to, why it was the last country to eradicate it in Africa was because there's a lot of war and conflict in Africa uh, and to get, sorry, in Nigeria and to get to 95% of Nigerians immunised, frontline relief workers had to take a lot of risks. 95% of frontline relief workers are women in Nigeria and they had to take a lot of risks to get people in remote, dangerous locations immunised. So in a terrible year, frontline workers in Nigeria who are immunising people against polio. You are my absolute hero this week. Congratulations. Now, James, before we move on, we were meant to mention that we... Speaking of heroes, James and I last week, were, last night we were on Northern Vibe, a podcast by Matt Maloney. It's up in the, he's located up in Cairns in north, far north Queensland. It's called Northern Vibe. It's about primarily uh, the push in far north Queensland to have uh, a new state up there. He's an awesome bloke. Check out the podcast Check out his interview with us. It was an awesome chat. Give it a listen, James. Genuinely one of the most fun hours I've had for a while, and I'm very glad that I've already been offered the role of Governor General in this new state, which I uh, plan to use. So mm. that would be awesome. I was offered the role of a minister, which I was very uh, very pleased about. But we all, as I said last night, James, we all need a bit of Matt Maloney in our lives. So check it out. Northern yeah, Northern Vibe. Vibe. Great podcast. All right, Not let's plural. go over. Northern Vibe singular. Northern vibe, yes, good point. Uh, so that uh, those are the heroes this week. Uh, yeah, and well done, world, for eradicating polio because that is just awesome and definitely the kind of good news that we'd be uh, needing right now. Villains this week, I refuse to have the clip pulled. <laughs> um, so, Pete, I don't know if you want to introduce it. Roll the tape, Muskie. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. Okay, that was the fake nudity run that happened uh, at the Extinction Rebellion a long time ago now, last October, about a year ago now. And because that's a fake nudity run and not a proper nudity run, we say that the villain of the week is the Extinction Rebellion fake nudity run villain of the week. James, who is your villain? Pete, if I can cast your mind back a few months to when the New York Times opinion editor had to resign over the decision to let a uh, Senator Tom Cotton, I believe it was, write an article basically saying that if rights in the US were to continue, the federal marshals should be brought in. And this led all the New York Times opinion staff to say this puts minority writers at the New York Times at risk. The editor should be fired, and it was basically a complete takeover of the New York Times by this woke collective within the opinion editorial staff. And let's have a look at what the New York Times has now run with under this new regime. So let, let's just open up the New York Times opinion pages, and what do we have here? Hong Kong is China, like it or not. After months of chaos in the city, something had to be done, and the Chinese government did it. So, I mean... 
you know, that's freedom. That's freedom right there. That's speaking truth to power. This is an article written by Regina Ip, uh, who is a legislator and member of the Executive Council in Hong Kong, so she's part of the government. Uh, key quote for me, I mean, the whole article was completely disgusting, but the key, key quote for me, foreign governments, quote, benchmark Hong Kong against the rest of China and measure how the city can maintain its unique characteristics, openness and commitment to personal rights and freedoms, respect for the rule of law, and the ability to reinvent itself economically. Beijing's national security law is saving one country two systems by ensuring that Hong Kong does not become a danger to China. That's a relationship. The national security law is just this law that stops this free market city of wonderful freedom becoming a threat to the mainland China. That's all they're there for. So New York Times, well done. Well done. Uh, This takeover is complete. And these new articles that ring freedom and keep people safe and don't put anyone in harm's way have led to this. They must be absolutely lying awake at night in Beijing worrying about Hong Kong uh, invading. It's definitely not the other way around. So, no, that's unbelievable that that actually got through, James. I can't believe that that would happen. Like, the New York Times is pretty terrible, fair enough, but the fact that they would do that is very weird. Um, All right, so my villain this week is Mark McGowan, Premier of Western Australia. We have a lot of Western Australian listeners. Mark McGowan did his best uh, Pol Pot impersonation this week when he was asked why WA borders remain closed. He said the benefit to opening uh, to South Australia or the Northern Territory for what for WA is not there. All we do is lose jobs. All we would do is lose jobs were we open to those states. There's only, they're only saying all this stuff for very self-interested reasons because we have higher incomes and people who are more used to travelling and therefore we'll have more tourists from Western Australia to go to the east. Now, there's two massive problems with this, James. Firstly, that's not really how it works. You know, you, you can't just tell people they can't travel because it's good for your economy. And secondly, I feel like we settled this when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations and that, you know, Mark McGowan's idea that we don't need, that WA can just make all its stuff itself. It doesn't need people from anywhere else. We can make everything we need right here in WA. You know, I would, I, I would advise Mark McGowan to cast his eye over history to see how that's gone. Uh, it generally doesn't go very well. And actually, free trade and open exchange is good for the economy, not the other way around. So, Mark McGowan, um, to keeping the border closed uh, for... Sorry, so, yeah, uh, Mark McGowan for arguing that it's somehow good for the economy to keep the border closed. You are my villain this week, apart from the well, rights issue as well. Uh, but also, I, this wasn't week. this board in on health advice? Yeah. Like, are, well, we, are we just saying, uh, no, you know what, we're keeping these borders closed because jobs and economy. Like, no, you, you said health advice, and if the health advice has run out, then what what are you doing this for? I mean, it's just this needless populism, from, and every premier is guilty of it. It's just like, okay, you know what, this is popular in the polls, we're doing it now, and Western Australia's hard border closure is the number one example of that. I mean, that... Uh, it, it is laughable, that kind of quote, to be that far removed from where the goalposts were on borders, like even a month ago. It was like health, 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 health. To now just be, you know what? The economy's good and we're jealous of Eastern Australia. It's 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 not health. It's not the economy. It's purely politics. You've got that 100% right, James. And hopefully that'll change over time as Western Australians go, actually, I'd like to do something different apart from be here. Yeah, and look, uh, I got a sideways note here, and I brought up just before that Tom Cotton article about the need for field marshals to come in when there's riots. Well, maybe Western Australia need field marshals to step in with the amount of tourists that they're receiving, because the tourism minister for Western Australia has said that the regions are so full of tourists, like this is a justification for keeping the border closed. The regions are so full of tourists right now that they could not accommodate Eastern State visitors if the hard border would come down. So Western Australia are just so inundated with internal visitors 
that if you lift the hard border, the eastern sub like the eastern states are just going to override an already broken industry. And then, can you imagine what would happen if we raise the international border with all these people coming to Western Australia? It would be absolute chaos. Rottnest Island might collapse under the weight of tourists alone and recede into the ocean. I mean, maybe this is a crisis point. Just how successful Western Australia's tourism economy is right now. I absolutely don't believe you, WA Tourism Minister. I bet there are tourism operators up and down Western Australia going, uh, actually, we, we could accommodate a few more extra customers if that happens. So Yeah, we could accommodate maybe five more, maybe yeah. a bit more than that. I don't know. That Like in a, in a crowded field of incredible quotes I've heard this year, that might be one of the best. <laughs> yeah, that is just straight up definitely not true. Mm. All right, that is it for the start of the show. We'll now go to our interviews with Tim Wilson and Clay Chandler. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show a friend of the show and a friend of the IPA, Tim Wilson, MP. How are you going? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. Because we wanted to talk to you about your new book, The New Social Contract, Renewing the Liberal Vision for Australia. So a lot of themes coming out of this book, uh, a lot of big ideas. But first, I want to start off with why did you want to write this one? So I wanted to write it because I wanted to give clarity to people who are on the centre right of politics about what they should be focusing on what uh, increases their chances of electoral success, uh, but also to really kind of try and provide an alternative narrative of some of the issues that are floating around in society at the moment. Um, What we've got, uh, the largest voting demographic in Australia today is between the ages of 18 to 35, and they need a voice on issues, particularly around housing affordability, so that uh, they buy into uh, the the liberal ideal, the classical liberal ideal of a society that empowers individuals Um, that's built from the citizen up and comes from a society and economy based on ownership and property, not uh, falling for the false um, con of socialism, everything it promises but fails to deliver. Tim, it's called the new social contract. We don't, as far as I know, talk about the social contract that much on the centre-right. It's more a concept uh, of the left side of politics. What is the social contract and how does it need to be updated? Well, it's actually not a concept of the uh, centre-left or the centre-right. It's one of political theory, which is the idea that people have an expectation about what they get from governance um, and what binds us all together. And one of the things that's really unique about Australian um, liberalism has always been an understanding that government has a job to protect our rights and our freedoms um, and, and a free society. And so the point of the book is to say, actually, social contract changes over time. Um, David Kemp and his, uh, Dr. David Kemp, a uh, friend of the IPA, has written a five-part volume on the history of Australian liberalism and made the point that when uh, liberal ideas first came with European settlers, there was a social contract that was expected then around, uh, around protecting people's rights and freedoms. It's evolved over time, it's uh, adjusted, but it's about basically uh, making sure the structures in society broadly meet the aspirations of its population. And that changes with demography demography and circumstances. And I guess the point that I want to make in the book is that the foundation very much of a liberal social contract is um, the idea of a, a society built through individual empowerment, uh, from a society built from the citizen up, and one where people have a sense of ownership, and particularly around home ownership as an investment in the country uh, and the success of the nation. 
Yeah, I want to talk about home ownership soon, but you brought up young people before, and I think this is why uh, I was so glad to read this book, was because there's so many movements happening around the world because young people in, uh, you talk about the US and the UK and even here in Australia, are starting to feel that they're priced out of the market on everything they want and you know they don't feel the same uh, ability for economic mobility that previous generations have felt and that leads to people like Sanders becoming really influential in the US and people like Corbyn in the UK. Now ultimately both weren't made leaders, but do you, do you see a similar movement happening in Australia in say the next 15 or 20 years of someone from a very social wing of Labor or the Greens becoming that far, uh, becoming so close to becoming a leader? Well, Sanders and Corbyn were a reflection of the backwash of the global financial crisis, where decisions were made by government, uh, Republican and Democrat, um, where they made decisions around who got the benefits of the consequences of measures after the GFC. Um, and the point I make in the book, the same is also true with Jeremy Corbyn, uh, is that uh, when you have an economic crisis, uh, the impact is uh, unfairly felt by young, young people. That's resolutely true in the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I think we now have to start the clock. I think there's a very serious risk of not just a health crisis, not just the economic crisis, which is starting to unfold, but then the political crisis about the consequences of who wins and who loses out of that. And uh, uh, I wrote this book before COVID-19 and made the, raised the concern that these things were about a decade away. Now that COVID-19 is here, I'd say it's probably about five years away. And this is the most disturbing thing in the UK and the US. You know, they ran to unreconstructed socialists from the Cold War who were baby boomers. So it's got obviously nothing to do with individual identification, young people voting for young people. It's the insane ideas, the, the lies that they put out there that have become alluring to young people because they don't feel like the current system is working for them. Tim, um, the the housing market makes up a big part of your concern. At the launch of this book, which is on YouTube if people want to check it out, uh, you spoke about how home ownership was central to Menzies' idea of how he saw Australia. Beyond simply being just a good economic move to buy a house, what is the relationship between home ownership and how we see Australia? Well, home ownership is, is many things. Yes, it has some sort of financial benefit, and that's true in your working life and also in your retirement. Um, but it also has uh, a cultural dimension. It changes your perception about what you see is important. You get an investment or a stake in a status quo, so you then have an interest in conserving the existing society. Uh, you, uh, it's a foundation which you can leverage to build up things like small business. So Menzies, um, Sir Robert Menzies talked about how it turned little platoons into little capitalists. Uh, but it's also that, that general sense of security uh, in the world um, and the basis in which you build confidence. It's also the foundation of people's nationalism. If you have an investment in the nation, um, you want to conserve it, but you'll also then want to defend the nation and the, the system that we have in place. So it has so many different benefits. And one of the biggest concerns I have is that younger Australians are being locked out of home ownership for lots of reasons. It's not just uh, the things that people normally talk about. And that's why it's got to be central to public policy because it's basically whether our society conserves itself. Yeah, because the stat uh, that really gets me about this is that the... Uh 
The only age group that has experienced a rise in home ownership in the last 30 years is the over 65s, and even then it's only in the top quintile of income distribution. So uh, the situation is really grim, and I know a lot of people, uh, we've got a a lot of young listeners, obviously I have a lot of young friends who are just feeling like they're probably never going to own a home. So what policy solutions can we come up with that's going to even that out a bit? Well, firstly, we shouldn't buy the lie that young people won't be able to buy their own homes. It's just getting harder And the job of responsible governments is to change that. And there are so many things that we can do. Uh, One of the biggest um, problems we have is the gap between income and uh, the cost of buying housing. In 1980, it was about four times the average income. Today in Melbourne, it's nine. In Sydney, it's 11. Um, And there are a lot of factors that are driving that. Regulation is a big one. The Reserve Bank did a study recently looking at the cost of building a new apartment in Sydney and found a third of the cost came down to essentially zoning regulation. Um, Loose monetary policy, so pumping more money into the economy to keep it afloat. Um, Because we live in a globalised economy, the cost of uh, goods that are traded internationally can't go up uh, to reflect inflation, so it's going into fixed assets that aren't as easily traded housing. So getting uh, the Reserve Bank to be more prudent. Um, But changing tax is a critical part of it, particularly around stamp duty, because it stops people trading housing. And of course, there's no, uh, in fact, encourages people to hold on to it, even when they don't need it, um, which only inflates um, supply. So, and of course, building new housing is a critical part of that conversation as well. So there are so many things we could do to dramatically reduce the cost of new housing, to give young Australians a sense of hope, And of course, the other big one is uh, from the first day you work, you're forced to save for your retirement, often 50 years into the future. Yet the average age people buying or Australians buying homes is in their mid 30s. And the compound benefit they get is then over about a period of 50 years of their life if they own their own home. It's absurd that we prioritise superannuation savings ahead of saving to buy your own first home. So reprioritising that help solve a lot of those problems that's a that's a great point you make about superannuation there Tim we saw heaps of people um, access their superannuation during the little hiatus we've had over the last few months do you reckon this is a way that the Liberal Party can um, I guess uh, what's the word resonate with younger voters um, this idea that we can make it easier for you to buy a house is that a way that the Liberal Party can attract some of that support and maybe divert it from the uh, socialist type end of things Well, I think it is, um, and that shouldn't be our motivation, but that's a nice side benefit, particularly if you're a Liberal parliamentarian like myself. Uh, But it's really just about getting our priorities right. You know, liberalism as a political ideology is anchored in empowering as many Australians uh, to be able to realise out their life and their ambitions for themselves. Uh, And so what um, these sorts of reforms would do would actually make it easier for young people to get ahead easier them to get a job, easier them to buy a home, easier for them to buy uh, to found a family, uh, and easier ultimately to put themselves in a long-term position of economic, um, social uh, and uh, political health. And it's good for the country too. So uh, I think if you speak to people about, or speak to young people about the issues that are confronting them and their concerns and address them through good policy, yeah, you're probably going to win votes from them too. You brought up uh, compulsory superannuation before getting in the way of people owning a home. Would you end compulsory superannuation? Uh, That's sort of the focus. I think what we should be doing is reprioritising it and saying at the moment you're forced to start saving for your superannuation, your first job, so 18, um, and then you start saving one-tenth of your salary from that moment on 
until you retire. Whereas um, you don't actually get the benefit of that for about 50 years. Whereas the average person starts um, or buys their own home much younger. So if we make that pathway easier um, to encourage home ownership, then you'll get the benefit, not just in your working life, but in your retirement as well. And in fact, the biggest leading indicator of um, poverty in retirement isn't your superannuation balance. It's whether you own your own home. And one of the most disturbing trends we're seeing is many entrenched interests, particularly in the Labor Party and the trade union movement, who then want to take your retirement savings, build housing, which you then rent off them or yourself, because they don't want you to own your own home. Uh, they want a culture and a society built on dependence. And that's anathema to everything that anyone who believes in the liberal democratic path should believe in. See, one of the things I found really interesting about the book was that it situates Australian liberalism in the British, American, and European tradition, uh, but also explains what is distinctive about Australian liberalism or Australian liberals. What is distinctive about Australian liberals? Well, essentially, liberalism is in many ways a radical political ideology. Every political, other political ideology, and this was explored extensively by people like Hayek, is anchored around centralising power to achieve a collective purpose. So if it's fascism, it's order. If it's socialism, it's equity and conformity within society. If it's religious fundamentalism, it's moralism um, through centralised authority. Liberalism is against that. It's in favour of essentially a classless society where everybody's able to live out their lives and realise their ambitions. The difference between Australian liberalism and, say, for instance, the derivatives in the UK or the US is it was never really rebelling against anything. The European settlers who arrived, um, and we need to acknowledge, probably didn't pay the right deference towards Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander customs and their pre-cohabitation. But it's always been fighting for a classless society, and as far as they saw, it started a bit more with a blank canvas. Whereas liberalism in the UK, for instance, was always fighting hereditary privilege uh, and the structures that existed as a legacy, essentially, of feudalism. So that's what makes it different. And because we promoted ownership and an ownership-based society as the foundation for empowerment, it's always had a very large democratic mandate because most people have always bought into the idea because the idea has suited them and achieved, uh, enabled them to live out their life and their success. So this is a bit of a left field question, but the fact that Australian liberals have never really had to jealously defend liberties against something like you brought up British and hereditary privilege in America and, uh, you know, no taxation without representation. The fact that there's such an absence of that in Australia, does that tell you anything about why Australians on the whole have been pretty happy to give away a lot of their freedoms? You think about the, the stage for lockdown in Victoria and how popular it's been, people's freedoms disappearing overnight. Do you reckon it's just the history of Australian liberalism? No, I don't think so. Um, firstly, I don't think the lockdown is popular at all. I just think a lot of people think it may be necessary or they're very con they, they believe uh, that in the end they don't have the information to solve such a big problem as a pandemic, so they're prepared to trust people who they believe at least have more information and they believe are in a better position to do so. Now, um, I think that will corrode as soon as uh, the uh, lockdown measures um, reveal itself. In fact, you know, it's one of the, uh, the great lessons of people who are hostages is that they often don't realise just how bad their treatment was until after they've been set free. So I don't think it's popular. Um, I think the point around rights and freedoms is people do accept that there is some trade-off to protect people's lives and livelihoods at this time. 
and people are aware of the potential risks to not just themselves, but other people in their family groups or their community. But Australia's never had a really rigid um, political culture of defending rights and freedoms. One of the papers I cite in the book is one by a British academic called Hugh, Holl Hugh Collins, who wrote a, uh, or let's say, a de Tocquevillean essay on what was distinctive about Australian political culture. And he basically said, you know, there's never been a rebellion against, the closest we had, of course, is the Eureka Rebellion, um, against uh, centralised authority because the foundations of the modern country were essentially liberal. And so we've always found a much better balance between rights and freedoms and a sense of justice in society. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I sort of agree with you a bit yet there, James. Um, Zach, Zachary Gorman, who works at the IPA, sort of mentioned on the company Slack the other day that um, the reason Australians don't rebel that much is because when we asked Britain for our freedoms, they politely gave them to us. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting how that sort of continues to flow through through history. Anyway, one of the things I like about this and I think that our side of politics could do a little better is explain to young people uh, about why stuff like free markets are important and why stuff like home ownership is important. Um, you know, sometimes it's sort of... I guess it's probably not the full impression, but you get this idea that when young people complain about it's really hard to buy a house, you know, they hear the stop buying avocado or whatever it is. Um, but uh, but I think, you know, we should take those those things seriously, the idea that there's a lot of student debt and that housing is really uh, important. How can we talk about why free markets matter uh, a little bit better to young people? Pretty broad question, but how can we do that? Well, I think it comes from understanding what, what the point of free markets is and, in fact, what liberalism itself is, that it's anathema to systems or political systems or economic systems designed to empower um, centralised authority or, politely, people like me who are in positions of responsibility. The critical thing about liberalism and, and free markets uh, as well is that um, it's all focused on empowering individuals empowering individuals to take responsibility and decide their own lives. We, uh, uh, we decentralise political power through voting and through federalism, so giving power to um, competitive forms of governance rather than uh, through uh, Monopoly Canberra. We distribute economic power through um, uh, providing uh, people the freedom to choose how to live their own lives and to be able to earn their own income and spend it as they see fit and for the competitive market to work. Uh, we promote social um, liberalism by making sure that uh, we you know, respect people's rights and freedoms to choose how to live their lives. So it's all about decentralising power, and I think what we've got to ultimately do is talk about it in the context of freedom and responsibility. And I think that's a really important part, is the freedom uh, to choose with the responsibility of the choice. Uh, and if you make that argument, there are lots of economic arguments about why free markets are more efficient and everything else, but as I say in the book, you know, making an argument that something's better because it's more efficient rarely wins the day in terms of an argument unless you're an economist. It's actually got to be a moral argument, which is you should be able to decide how to live your own life. The trade-off is there are consequences where you've got to accept responsibility, the good and the bad. Um, and that's one of the great successes or the great opportunities of life. And Jordan Peterson, of course, has spoken extensively about this and found a massive connection with young audiences because what he's talking about is choice and responsibility. Uh, Tim Wilson, the book is The New Social Contract, Renewing the Liberal Vision for Australia. It's available online. If I was allowed to go in a bookstore, I could verify if it's available <laughs> in bookstores as well. Select. I'm sure it is. Select bookstores. So yeah, New Social Contract, uh, read it. It is a really good read, Tim. Thank you so much for your time.
Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Okay, we now welcome on to the show Liberal Senator from Tasmania, Claire Chandler. Claire, how are we going? Pretty well, thanks. How are you guys? Very good. So, Claire, we talked on this show last week about how it looked for a while there that you were going to be brought before Tasmania's Anti-Discrimination Commissioner based off an article and then an email that you had written. Uh, So, we want to talk about all the themes there. But first off, what was it like finding out about this and what was the process of receiving them and the dialogue that you had back and forth? Look, to be honest, it, it, it didn't feel great to get that phone call from my office uh, four weeks ago now um, while I was up in Canberra during um, one of our Senate sittings and I was uh, just waiting to go into the chamber actually on a division when someone from my office rang me up in Canberra on my mobile and said, oh, we've just had a call in the Richmond office from Equal Opportunity Tasmania. They say that you need to give them a call back and you do um, knowing what equal opportunity Tasmania is like you have a think back on to all of the issues that you've been talking about recently and I was pretty sure I, was, I knew um, exactly what uh, a complaint was going to be about but um, yeah gave them a call and then they sent a, a letter through outlining the complaint that they had accepted against me uh, like you say, based on an opinion piece that I wrote in the Mercury newspaper back in July and subsequent email correspondence that I had with a constituent who uh, quite politely uh, contacted me and wanted clarification on my views. I provided that clarification and the complaint just rolled on from there. So not not a great feeling um, when you receive a, a piece of legal correspondence like that, but at the same time, um, I thought, well, this is uh, this is the sort of thing I got into politics to fight for, to fight for free speech. And so I certainly didn't waste that opportunity. A few hours later, I went into the chamber and under parliamentary privilege outlined exactly what the complaint um, made against me consisted of. So and the process just rolled from there. Claire, so you mentioned what happened there. There was also, so it was a complaint about an email you'd written to a constituent. Um, Am I right in saying that you were also warned by Equal Opportunity Tasmania to not say anything that was insulting or offensive to the uh, commissioner herself? Is that correct? That came a couple of weeks later. So um, like I said, I, I gave the speech in the Senate chamber and put out some media releases and did uh, garner a lot of media attention around this complaint. And uh, off the back of that, concerned constituents from right across the country started uh, emailing the uh, Anti-Discrimination Commissioner in Tasmania, um, you know, basically saying that they didn't think there was any substance in the complaint against me and that it should be dismissed. So I believe it was on the back of those emails that they decided to contact me and, uh, you know, read out that relevant section of the Anti-Discrimination Act in Tasmania at me and, uh, you know, that there was an element of uh, threat about it, I think, sort of, you know, as much the same way that this entire process was conducted. It, the uh, commissioner can stop you from talking about it, um, they, they're going to try to. So that, that was certainly um, my experience. It was, you know, please, please shut up. Please get all of your friends that are supporting you to shut up. We want to be able to conduct this behind closed doors. I mean, at the same time, they asked me to sign a confidentiality agreement in relation to the conciliation I was summoned to, um, and, and I refused to sign that as well, which seemingly is the basis upon which the complaint was rejected. 
Yeah, so that complaint has been dropped. So it is pretty tempting to look at this as a big win, but I kind of feel that the fact that it even got to this point uh, is still very chilling. And we would have listeners down in Tasmania that are looking at this going, uh, there's so many restrictions and what you can and can't say, and you don't know when something's going to be brought up. So uh, you mentioned it's these Tasmanian anti-discrimination laws. Can you give us an idea of what they're about and just how much of a burden it places on free speech? Yeah, so for many years now, we've talked about the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act being one of the most restrictive pieces of legislation when it comes to free speech in this country. And that, um, in my opinion, is based on a couple of different things. Um, First and foremost, the fact that there is a section in the Act which makes it an offence to insult, offend, humiliate or harass someone based on a set of attributes, which is similar to what we see in uh, the Sex Discrimination Act or the Racial Discrimination Act federally. But the issue with the Tasmanian legislation is that the number of attributes that you can possibly do that um, on is is incredibly large. There's a list of, you know, at least a dozen attributes that you can possibly offend someone on the basis of. So where um, I apparently tripped the act here was offending uh, somebody on the basis of gender identity uh, for the reference of your listeners and your viewers, um, the piece of uh, work that I've been uh, found to have just dis- um, seemingly found to have discriminated against people on is my advocacy for women's sport being for biological women, which has been a massive issue that's been uh, playing out really since I, I first commenced my term as a senator. So on the basis of saying something as uncontroversial as women's sport should be for biological women and that there are genuine reasons around that, um, I found myself hauled in front of the Anti-Discrimination Commissioner in respect. But you make a really interesting point. I mean, yes, the complaint has been dropped and I'm certainly happy that it has been dropped. But the issue we now have is that the Commissioner doesn't have to form a view on whether or not what I said was actually discriminatory. I mean, if if the process had gone the whole way through to tribunal, I like to think that the many legal arguments that I presented to the Commissioner in correspondence to her would have been aired and that I would have been able to clearly demonstrate that saying something as uncontroversial as women's sport should be for women shouldn't be viewed as discriminatory but now we will never know and importantly Tasmanians will never know and I'm certainly concerned that they will feel that they can't continue to speak up about this issue for fear of finding themselves in the same position I was. Claire, a comment I found really interesting was from Charlie Burton, who was a spokesman for Equality Tasmania. Now, one of the justifications for these organisations is that they're kind of neutral, uh, I guess, arbiters of harm. And they're just trying to prevent people from being harmed um, and, and, and being like the victim of discrimination. Now, he said, we want Senator Chandler to hear what life is really like for Tasmania's trans and gender diverse young people and their families, including the desire to be accepted just like everyone else and how negative stereotypes and misinformation can cause deep harm. It seems like they've already decided that what you said is misinformation. It's clear that this is not a neutral process that is trying to just be a neutral adjudicator of harm. This is basically the government being proactive in in what you can and can't say. Um, this, This happens all over Australia and all over the West. What do we do about this? at a kind of macro level and a long-term level? Like, how do we stop this happening more broadly? I guess at the macro level, what really needs to happen is we need to be changing these laws that make it an offence to to do something like this. But, I mean, the, the other point is that um, it's these unelected bureaucrats and these positions that have become the arbiters of what is right and wrong. And activists, particularly on the left, I believe, take 
that that for granted and they certainly seem to um, infiltrate these positions and find themselves in a, in a place where they can determine what can and can't be said and try and shut down debates. So we need to be changing the legislation and, frankly, we need to be uh, ensuring that some good liberal thinkers are finding themselves in these positions where uh, fundamentally they can uh, make a more sensible decision when a complaint like this comes across their desk. I mean, the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Commissioner has the power or had the power, I should say, to dismiss the complaint made against me as vexatious, which I think, you know, most... Um, ordinary Australians would realise that it was, but she chose not to do so. So we, we need to make sure that we have sensible people in these positions. One of the things that really blew me about, blew me away about this case, and I'm going to basically paraphrase our colleague Morgan Begg in his article for the Spectator Australian magazine, was that if they can come for someone like you, who's a sitting Liberal senator, like a pretty big pillar of our society, or someone like thinking back a few years ago, Archbishop Porteous in Tasmania as well, if they can come for these you know, big figures, it really tells, uh, you know, just mainstream, like regular people that don't quite have access to the same, uh, you know, media outputs as yourself or Archbishop Porteous, that it's probably better for them if they just shut up because maybe the media doesn't catch on to it and maybe there's not the public pressure to drop cases or to find away from that. So um, I don't really have a question from that other than like, uh, yeah, so what what is this telling just regular Tasmanian people, what you've been through? I think it's really concerning. I mean, I um, said right from the outset, indeed, I said in the op-ed that I wrote in the Mercury newspaper that was the source of all of this trouble, that free speech shouldn't be reserved for the people who can defend themselves, whether that's through resources available to them or the position that they have. And I, I've said the whole way through that I'm a senator, I have access to parliamentary privilege, I have a public profile that I'm able to use to uh, make my case, particularly in situations such that um, the Anti-Discrimination Commission is trying to, to shut that, um, that down. But most Tasmanians, but most Australians don't have access to that. And since my case came to light, I've been contacted by so many people from across the country who all agree with what I said, but feel scared to uh, put their views forward in a, in a public way or affect change based on their views because they're scared of the same thing happening to them. I mean, from their perspective, you have to take time off work, you have to get yourself a lawyer. It's a serious impost on people's time. That's even before you get dragged before a quasi-judicial body to defend your views. So it would be um, pretty traumatising, I would have thought, for most Australians to find themselves in the position that I found myself in, and it's just unacceptable. Yeah, the idea that it's just this kind of, you know, conciliatory process where we all get together and have a chat is is it is it not true at all. Having discussed that with uh, a lot of the QUT students now, um, what you wrote obviously is controversial and it's like a, it's a, it is a complicated public policy uh, area. Uh, what, how should these disagreements play out? How should we, how should we, um, I guess, resolve these kind of complicated issues? Well, I think the most important thing when it comes to resolving these complicated issues is being able to have a public debate about them. And that's why the situation I found myself in is so disappointing that we should be able to have a conversation about whether or not trans women who are biologically male should be allowed out onto the sporting field or what role there is for uh, sex segregated bathrooms or change room facilities. But 
at the end of the day, people are being deplatformed and it's not just myself, it's people like JK Rowling for speaking out about the realities of biological sex and the rights that are, are attracted to that. So I think for us to be able to resolve this really important public policy issue, the first step is being able to talk about it openly. But in a situation where I go into the Senate chamber and I give an adjournment speech uh, on this topic and I, the next day I'm shouted down by a Labor senator for being transphobic, you can see why it's really difficult for us to have this discussion publicly. I want to talk about roles such as like anti-discrimination commissioners or legislation such as anti-discrimination acts. Uh, basically, the, they, they're bought in because people in you know these lawmaking facilities believe that there are marginalized members of the, our community that don't have access to the same level of free speech as others and they need legal protections to make sure their voices are heard or at the very least they're not uh, unduly criticized now do you reckon these are the kind of legislations that's going to help protect that in the long term or do you reckon there's a better way to uh, make sure that everyone's got an equal part in the debate well, like I say, if you if you have free speech and everyone feels comfortable and respected in being able to have a grown-up conversation about these issues, you shouldn't really need um, pieces of legislation to dictate what people's speech is. And one of the really confusing things I found about the situation uh, I was in was that I'm an elected member of parliament. I'm very accessible. My phone number is public information. My email is public information. There's nothing stopping someone who disagrees with me from contacting my office and saying, I disagree with Senator Chandler, I want to have a sit-down meeting with her. And, you know, most of the time, if it's a reasonable request, then I will I will take that meeting. So uh, it, it is very confusing when you think about, um, yeah, that, that whole idea of being able to have a, a full and frank and honest debate about these issues, particularly in a situation where uh, I'm, I'm an accessible and, you know, public person. So, yeah, very confusing. Claire, tr tr transgender participation in sport is a big deal, as you mentioned earlier, um, and it's a growing issue. Why do you reckon people are so afraid to talk about it? Um, oh, look, honestly, I think it's um, for fear of finding themselves in the same situation I found myself in or from being held down by the left on Twitter or um, being uh, felt, at, you know, in your place of work that the opinion that you are putting forward is unreasonable. I mean, like I say, in a situation where uh, woke activists are being able to shut down debate on this issue, it sort of has this perpetuating effect in that the more you shut down debate, the more one point of view, the, the, the uh, perspective that you aren't shutting down becomes so prevalent. And I think that's what we've seen happen here. I mean, look at what happened to JK Rowling. She is one of the great authors um, of, of a generation. I read her books growing up. All of my friends read her books growing up. We all grew up reading these Harry Potter books and appreciating the world that she created for us. But so many people my age have been the quickest to shut her down just because she said what she said. So yeah, it is, it is really worrying. I don't reckon everyone appreciated the Harry Potter books, but maybe that's a debate for another time. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> James doesn't like Harry Potter. Bit overrated, but... Uh, <laughs> that's a controversial important, opinion. <laughs> and we'll have it out on a free discussion. We can have another half-hour interview. I'll, I'll bring all of my research into the table. But <laughs> we, uh, I'll keep it to free speech just for now. And uh, yours is obviously just one battle that's underway in Australia at the moment. I also want to ask you about what happened to Peter Reid over at James Cook University. Uh 
listeners of this show would definitely know uh, what's happening, but in case maybe you're new to this episode, uh, Peter Reid was basically silenced by his employers at James Cook University over not being collegiate on on the idea of research about the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on that whole story and what happened. Oh, look, the the Peter Reid case um, has been uh, an absolute concern for me for for some time. And it goes to that other tricky issue that we always see playing out alongside um, restraints on free speech in this country. And this is the uh, whole idea of academic freedom and its erosion on our university campuses. I've spoken about this in my maiden speech uh, to the Senate. I've spoken about it in media interviews since then. I mean, people would be looking at what has happened to Peter Reid and uh, really, I think, feeling concerned that we aren't allowed to have the hard conversations about issues at university campuses and talking about how the issue of transgender inclusion in sport has become so controversial. I think the erosion of academic freedom does potentially have something to answer for here. I mean, you only have to read uh, the work of um, Deborah So and her book, uh, The End of Gender, to see the impact that um, a lack of academic freedom in our research institutes, or obviously in her case she's talking about um, what's happening in Canada and the US, has on the broader public debate around these issues. So, you know, I'm certainly concerned about what's happening to Peter Reid and I'll be interested to see uh, whether this uh, appeal that he's undertaking is successful. But, I mean, the, the coalition government, I believe, is uh, firmly committed to ensuring that we get a better balance with uh, free speech on, on campuses and encouraging universities to be places of academic inquiry because it's so important that our kids are going to universities and feeling that they can talk about their ideas and have their ideas challenged because that's only going to strengthen their opinions and make them better graduates in the long run. Claire, this is, I, I ask a lot of uh, our guests this question and you sort of just touched on it there, but um, so, you know, obviously we have a bit of an intellectual monoculture across the West in our universities and this is what drives a lot of this stuff is because everyone comes out of university with the same worldview and the same assumptions about the world. Um, it's hard from a sort of a, a classical liberal perspective to kind of fix that uh, or not fix that but change that. What Do you have any thoughts about how we might be able to do that, get better balance at universities, more just a, a wider view, so students hearing a wider view of viewpoints? Like I say, I think if you can uh, ensure that universities are places where diversity of thought is valued, then you will have more diverse voices contributing to that broader um, research spectrum and teaching spectrum. I mean, my experience at university um, was quite typical of most uh, young conservative Australians. I suspect there weren't many lecturers at university that shared my world viewpoint. Fortunately, when I went through, I just um, used that as an opportunity to strengthen my views and make sure that um, that I was uh, confident in, in the way that I thought about the world. And I, I certainly think I came out at the end a better liberal for having challenged myself in that respect. But, yeah, like you say, um, there is a concern that students are only getting taught um, one side of the coin or, or even just one view in a spectrum of views. So if we can ensure that universities are places that uh, foster academic inquiry and encourage students, academics to have a broad range of views, then that, that exposure should, I hope in time, ensure that we see this, um, see a, more views being promulgated at our universities and descend to this monoculture, like you say. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I just want, and one final free speech story I want you uh, to, well, sorry, I want to hear what you think about. So the Generation Liberty team we have here at the IPA were banned from having a table at the Queensland University of Technologies O-Week, even though Socialist Alternative were allowed to have one. Uh, just hope, like, if you did see that story, what did you make of that? I did see that story at the time and I thought that was incredibly disappointing. Generation Liberty does some really good work and talking about why it's important to have a broad range of views on campus. I mean, why wouldn't you uh, as a university be wanting to have an organisation such as Generation Liberty on campus to cater for students that might be interested in finding out more about our personal liberties and the freedoms that we've fought hard for? So that, I think that was pretty disappointing, absolutely. Claire Chandler, thank you for your time. Thanks, Claire. Okay, thank you too, Tim Wilson and Claire Chandler. Let's run through some stories, Pete. Uh, you, this is the thing that you were looking forward to, Morris and the show, and I don't want to deprive you at all of setting it up and following through with it. So, Pete, talk us through it. Okay, well, yeah, the reason, as you mentioned, I mentioned this at the top, is because this is the piece de resistance of the tortured apology. Now, this guy, his name is Math- Professor Matthew Mayhew of Ohio State University, big football college, I believe, James, American football. He wrote- Big football college. There you go. Uh, He wrote an article called Why American Needs College Football. He wrote stuff in this article, which you'd think were pretty sort of uh, straight up uh, ideas. He he said he he thought it would help us get through these uncharacteristically difficult times of great isolation, division and uncertainty. He said college football holds a special bipartisan place in the American heart. Um, And he said that community values that underscore higher education and by extension, America itself are present in college football so this basic idea that sport brings us together uh, as a community and um, you know and and help us have things that connect us even though we have different ideas about politics well he was forced to write an apology I think the next day he used the same uh, headline which was why America needs college football part two and then he wrote it doesn't I was wrong and even worse I was uninformed ignorant and harm inducing and what follows is 800 words of the most torturous apology you could possibly imagine. He said, I'm struggling to find the words to communicate the deep ache for the damage I have done. Didn't seem like it. It was a very long piece. Um, and, and the highlight to me was... He yeah, said he found com- enough words. He found, he found more than a few words. He found the words. He goes, what can I do to unlearn patterns that hurt and harm black communities and other communities of color? So obviously he's got a pile on because uh, American football's racist apparently. Um, and... The, the apology, as I mentioned, is just so torturous. It's got this whole vague, I will learn, I will do better thing, but also it's racist and drains people's energy to ask how I can learn. Um, this, these ideas that don't exist like whiteness and blackness and all the lingo and all the double speak. And as I said, you know, this is what people will be studying in a few years' time on their Year 12 English exam when they're talking about this era. Do yourself a favour, find, find it. James, what do you think? Uh, I another university course that might teach this is cult management 101 because I mean this whole idea of like well you need to apologize we're not going to tell you how to do it but you need to give us even more power over you and then we'll think about accepting your apology I mean yeah. <laughs> like what are we doing here uh, I don't know I uh, maybe it's a bit easier for people involved in college sports to think of athletes as property considering that they don't pay the athletes at all so maybe it's not that far of a leap for him but I don't know. I would just say to people that are pushing uh, critical race theory and identity politics and stuff like that, the idea that uh, athletes are white property, 
Uh, if you're after people, people's hearts and minds, probably don't try and make them feel guilty for watching sport because it's not exactly going to want to make people... Uh, it's not going to make people want you to win. Yeah, and it, like obviously it's completely stupid. Like there's heaps of one of the you know if you're going to talk about economic problems that faced by African Americans in America, one of the few areas where they do really well is professional sport. It's the way out of the ghetto for a lot of African Americans, uh, and even people who don't play African Americans who don't play professional sport, they still love professional sport, and it is an area of um, unification or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I mean it's just this stuff's just crazy. Like it's just bonkers. Uh, um, and this guy, I feel like he's a bit naive because even the idea that to go out and write this article about how football is going to bring us together is a pretty naive article idea anyway. But um, I feel like he didn't know what was coming and he's been absolutely stitched up. And I mean, we're making fun of him, but he's probably a bit of a victim of all this as well. Uh, yeah, I don't think he owned... The, like, I don't think he's been the uh, aggressor on any of the decisions he's been making for the last couple of weeks. So... I think a lot of things have been forced upon him. Now, uh, I want to move on because uh, earlier in the show, I mentioned that tone deaf is now problematic. This is why. So Darren Walker is the president of the Ford Foundation, trustee of the National Gallery of Art over in the US. Got himself in a bit of hot water. Um, don't know exactly who from, but he felt the need to tweet out an apology for using the phrase tone deaf in an interview. He said, I use the term tone deaf inappropriately and out of context from its literal definition. I am deeply sorry for using this ableist language and apologize to the millions of people disabilities and the disability community now as someone that absolutely can't sing part of me is glad that uh the tone deaf people are able to get some sort of representation in the world these days but i also think if you like saying that tone deaf is offensive to deaf people is way more offensive than saying tone deaf yeah it's different. They're di definitely different things. They're completely being, different things. And being deaf is heaps worse than being tone deaf. <laughs> yeah, I just embarrass myself at karaoke nights. Like, it's a completely different idea. Yeah. So, I don't know if he's going to be forced to make a follow-up apology, potentially. My favorite bit about this one, James, is that this guy was already trying to be a woke legend. The reason he said tone deaf was because he was saying it would be tone deaf to show this guy's... His name's Philip Guston, or Guston. Uh, is an artist, it would be tone deaf for these museums to show his art because it features uh, images of the KKK in it. So to talk about... Wait, wait, didn't he say that my use of the tone deaf wasn't the correct use? That does seem like the correct use of tone deaf. Yeah, yeah. It, well, I mean, he's invented this idea that tone deaf is offensive. Um, anyway. But yeah, yeah, so he's already trying to be... I like the fact he was trying to be a woke legend and then he got unwoked by being... You know, like he was cancelling uh, black art. Um, he was, it was no. He wanted to talk about black history by cancelling black history at the same time. So he was already trying to be a woke legend, and then he got in trouble for this. Um, I just, it strikes me as like, it's odd because, as you said, like this guy's president of the Ford Foundation and trustee of the National Gallery of Art. How many deeply, deeply stupid people occupy positions of power in our society? It's incredible. Like this guy's. Yeah, welcome horror. to the real world, Pete. <laughs> It's like, hey, it's this the last hundred years just not happened to you. <laughs> I mean, look, yeah, okay, fine, you're right. But it's just like, oh my God, this guy. <laughs> you, how do you get out of bed? How do you tie your shoes in the morning? Um, I, who, who knows? Now, speaking of people that are going to have trouble tying their shoes, you want to talk about South Australia's uh, move to vertical consumption? Well, this is one of those ones where you say we should pack up the joint and give it to the Chinese because this is. <laughs> Completely un-Australian from 
uh, Stephen Marshall, Premier of South Australia. So uh, from last Friday, pubs and clubs in South Australia had their COVID restrictions reduced, which is great. Stephen Marshall said, and basically part of that included you can drink standing up because we know that you know you're going to get COVID if you drink standing up but not sitting down. Um, it's vertical and, consumption, Pete. That's the phrase. Well, it's not drinking Steve, standing up, it's vertical consumption. As Stephen Marshall said, for licensed premises, we will now allow vertical consumption outdoors, which is clearly a naked attempt to give some kind of uh, some kind of medical authenticity to these rules they've made up. Um, he's calling drinking standing up vertical consumption. For those licensed premises that have outdoor areas, there can be vertical consumption, whereas previously we've only allowed it seating consumption. It's drinking standing up, mate. You know, if we're going to call standing at the front bar with a frothy vertical consumption, then as I said, pack the joint up. We're done. Vertical. I kind of want to end the show on that, but we've got another story here about schoolies. <laughs> All right, let's do that. <laughs> let's let's have just paid. Like this is just Old Testament paid. I'll sit in the corner and just have some water. Tell the country how to get better. Old Testament paid. I like that. Uh, okay, well this one's a bit different, but the, there's the, apparently the cherries are having a massive year. It's been a great winter for cherries. Tom Eastlake, cherry farmer and president of Cherry Growers Association. Cherry Growers Australia, so it's been a bumpy year for cherries. But someone's got to pick them because no, there's not as many backpackers around because we've closed our borders. Now, recruiting agency Coswine, national manager Ed Milne, uh, and Ed doesn't seem like a bad fella. He just, I just think he's a little bit misguided. He said, this is an opportunity for people to still celebrate what is a milestone event. He's talking about finishing year 12. <clears throat> milestone event, which is the completion of year 12, as he says. Um, it's just a different method of celebration. So what Eddie's trying to do, he's trying to get people to pick these bloody cherries and he's trying to convince year 12 kids that they should go on schoolies to pick cherries. Now, I don't think Ed knows what happens at schoolies. You don't need these kids near your cherry farms, Ed. This is not a good idea. This is not going to end well. You're not going to see many cherries picked. You're going to see a lot of interesting behavior at campsites. This is not a good idea. Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack said, if you know somebody who might be on the coast who might be lounging around with a surfboard, tell them to come to the regions. Tell them to bring their mobile with them. God, they're going to bring their mobile, mate, uh, because it would be a great Instagram moment for them to get up the tree, pick some fruit. Who knows? They might take some friends with them. They might make new friends. They might meet the love of their life. So this is like your dad just trying to convince you to do this thing you don't want to do with all these promises of how much fun it's going to be, and it's just not a good idea. Uh all I'd say is like, I know there's a lot of, we have a lot of high school listeners and, you know, a lot of them would be pretty bummed out that schoolies isn't going ahead. So to that, I'd just say like, um, you know, uh, this is just me speaking, but schoolies is the most overrated weekend. <laughs> it's it just the most overrated thing in Australian culture. It is not as fun as people make it out to be. You'll be okay. There's many weekends ahead of you that are going to be better than schoolies. I disagree with James. Schoolies is awesome, but you, yeah, I mean, there are going to be other, there are going to be other things, um, and probably like if I was going to take this seriously, I mean, it might not be a bad idea to go make a bit of cash for a few months. Um, on a serious note, but from a jokes perspective, it's just funny that Ed Milne is like, oh, yeah, Ed, I would have, get- I would have, like, if I was him, I would have just pushed the money side of things rather than the. Well, this was Michael McCormack, but the you'll meet the love of your life because I mean, people could see through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did fruit picking once, but I didn't make enough money, so I left after a few hours. Why would you... (laughs) You're all over the shop. Do it, don't do it, don't do it, do it.
Oh, if you, if you, I think if you do it for hours and hours and hours, you can make money. But I did it for like three hours and worked out how much money I was going to make. That is harder. That is more effort than you've put into most things in your life. So I think you gave it a good college try. I might have given a bit of mayo, actually. <laughs> that is it for the show this week. Thank you, Terry, Tim Wilson, and Claire Chandler for those interviews. Uh, if you like the show, if this is your first time listening, uh, you know you can uh, listen to us on all podcast platforms and on YouTube. If you have friends or family that are like the show, tell them about us. Yes, I got that order right. Yep. Uh, if you like the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, feel free to leave us a review and a star rating. That would be awesome. Um, we've also got a bunch of other podcasts here. Talked about the IPO with you. They've got their live budget forecast happening tonight. So go check that out. And if you're going to list, be listening to this later in the week, that budget review is going to be also available to listen to. Looking Forward comes out every Wednesday. Viral Banter had an episode out this week, so go check out Renee Gorman and our talented team of IPA Campus Coordinators talking about what matters for uni kids right now. Uh, And then all the podcasts we've also got out there in our growing podcast network. So see you guys next week. See ya. Thanks all. Big interview next week. Looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and check out Northern Vibe because that was a whole lot of fun and people should listen to it because Matt Maloney is a legend. See you guys next week. See ya.